Welcome back. We are halfway done. We are getting close to the end. This is um, this is our second to last big topic, the Trinity. I know it kind of blows our mental circuits. Hope everyone wasn't too um, overwhelmed last week. But really, just a quick review, um, if this will work. One moment. There we go. The Trinity, just the big points, big picture of the whole thing is distinction, equality, and unity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all distinct. They're all equal in their divinity, and they are unified. And the easiest way to just describe someone, uh, the Trinity, is probably how they work. That the Father does through the Son by the Spirit. Like creation, God did it through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, God saves you through what His Son has done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how we pray. You pray to God in the name of the Son by the Holy Spirit. And that's helpful. But that, when I say that the Trinity, at the first slide, the Trinity, how God's nature changes everything, that doesn't really change everything everything about how we see the world. It's just that saying, well, God does through the Son by the Spirit. That may not seem too revolutionary, but what I want to talk about today is just how that is absolutely mind-blowing, how God is so much, so beautiful when you understand how this works and plays out in your everyday life. This is absolutely radical. I'm just going to call it the dance of God. I don't want to sound a little glib or irreverent, but it's the best way I can think to describe the Trinity is like a dance. Um, That the Trinity is all about glory. You've probably heard this said, that God is absolutely all about His glory. Well, obviously, people might come back and say, well, God then is a selfish God. He's self-centered. He's focused on Himself. If that's all He cares about, all He cares about Himself. That's a... Um, argument I've heard from plenty of skeptics when you say God is all about glory. But even if you, no matter where you look, that's what it comes down to. The Westminster Confession, what is the chief goal of man? To uh, love God and worship Him forever, to glorify Him. But really the question, glory is not, I I, I don't think it's just sit down and and pay attention um, to me. Um, it, it's not a selfish act. Glorifying means to praise, enjoy, or delight in someone or something. To praise, enjoy, and delight in someone or something. So for us, if someone's going to glorify us, we have to sit down and say, hey, you do this to me. But this is at the very center of God's nature. Glory is not about seeing someone as useful. Okay, so we're not saying, hey, how are you beneficial to me? If you're, if you're simply, your only relationship is about, hey, how can you help me? You're asking questions like this. What can this person do for me? How am I benefiting? How can they make me happy? Dating relationships, marriages, coworkers, hey, what are they doing for me? How are they making me happy? Do they fulfill me? Am I more complete Do I exist in a happier place because of this person? That is not a a glorifying relationship. That is a self-focused relationship. 
a glorifying relationship sees someone as beautiful. And this is totally different than being useful. We think of a, think of a, a beautiful painting or a flower or a sunset. You don't see a sunset and say, well, what does this sunset do for me? How can this help me? How does this, what is this painting? How does that fulfill me? All, you ask questions like, how can be, I be around this? The beauty of this thing, just being around it, is enough of a reward. What can I do for their happiness? So if, you, if you're thinking about this as a person, you see someone as beautiful, just being around them is a benefit. And you think, hey, what can I do for them? How can I serve them and make them happier? And your greatest joy is seeing their joy. That when you see someone as beautiful, when you're really in a glorifying position, when you say, hey, I'm going to enjoy you, I'm going to pay attention to that person, I'm going to give deference to that person over myself, your greatest joy comes in seeing their joy. Now, how does this matter to the Trinity? The Spirit lives to glorify the Son. We see that in the book of John. The Spirit exists to glorify the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. That all three persons in the Trinity are connected by showing glory to another. They're not... Like, if you're going to give a microphone to the Spirit, He's not going to say, pay attention to me. He's going to say, no, look at the Son. The Son is truth. If you give a, a microphone to the Father, He's not going to say, pay attention to me. He says, look, that, I'm giving you my Spirit, my Spirit of truth. Hey, look at the Son. This is the exact representation of me. And if you gave the Son the microphone, He's not going to say, hey, it's all right here. He's going to say, it's good for me to go. So I can send you another. That they're always saying, hey, pay attention to the other one. And this has been happening for all eternity. So let's think about, if you think about this spatially, that it's not that each one's kind of standing there sitting down, is that they're both pointing to the other two. Tim Keller has a great quote about this. Self-centeredness is stationary. In self-centeredness, we demand that others orbit around us. What can you do for me? How can you help me? How can you serve me? How do you fulfill me? We do things and give affection to others as long as it helps us meet our personal goals and fulfills us. The inner life of the triune God, however, is utterly different. The life of the Trinity is characterized by, not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve in someone else, we enter a dynamic orbit around them or him or her. Each of the divine persons orbits around the other two. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. That creates a dynamic, pulsating joy or dance of joy and love. There's a Greek word for that. We don't... It's perichoresis. It's where we get our word choreography, which means dancing or flowing around. So if you want to try to visualize this, three people trying to orbit around two people constantly, it's this dynamic, pulsating, active love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer kind of says something similar. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama, 
almost, if you, if you won't think me irreverent, a kind of dance. This three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. That, a couple weeks ago I said Christianity is not true, little t, it's not a truth, it is the truth, that it defines the very contours of reality. At the center of reality is a God who exists in giving self-giving love away. And it is dynamic, and it is alive, and it is active. Therefore, God is, you know, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Think about that. The entire Trinity exists to show love to the other parts of the Trinity. So God is the ultimate love. He is the truest love that exists, self-giving love. God is the truest love that exists. So here's a big question. God is the truest love. He doesn't need anything. He's in perfect relationship with the other members of the Trinity. So why did he create anything? That's a big question. God doesn't need anything. He's perfect. He's got others glorified. He's giving himself away in the truest form of love. He doesn't need anything else. So why create? Why did God make anything? I'll give you two hints and then I'll let you talk about it a little bit at your table. It was not to get love. Because the Trinity exists as a loving relationship. He didn't create because he needed love. And he wasn't random. And it wasn't impersonal. He didn't just, it didn't just randomly happen. So for about two or three minutes, why do you think God created? If you have a Bible verse that helps you out with that, that's even better. So, big, big question. Why did God even create anything? If it's tricky, think back to glory. How does, how does glory relate to it? Right, does anyone think they have a good answer or something they're willing to share? <laughs> to show his glory? Okay. Anyone else? You're def- I mean, that is, yes. I, yeah, I think y'all are on the right track. You may seem a little lost, but that is absolutely where I'm going with this. That is absolutely. God created as an overflow of love. Think of this. If God is love, and he exists in this love choreography since the beginning of time, that they're just expanding that circle. Ex- the Trinity is expanding that circle a little bit and saying, hey, Let's, let's share this love even more. And so out of, yeah. So is the, is 1 Corinthians 13? Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we're going to define love here in a little bit and really talk about what that is. So self-giving, self-sacrificing, um, enjoyment, we'll say enjoyment, um, devotion, care is what all of this was coming down to. There was so much of it that out of an overflow of that, God created something. And he created man in his own image. 
Really, God created us to share in the dance. Like, he said, hey, I'm going to make you in my image. That means you are made to give glory or self-giving love away. You were literally made for that. Particularly with God. Because originally in the garden, man was in perfect union with, with God. That God was sharing that, and then that was broken. And through Christ, God is inviting us back in to share in that. Here's a, here's a good verse for that. John 17, 20 through 23. My, this is Jesus praying for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, the disciples' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So he says, hey, I, I want everyone who hears this message to be one with God, just like I am one with God, is what Jesus is saying. I want you to share with this dance of self-giving love. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Think about that. Jesus said, I have given them glory, which means that for a moment, when Jesus says, hey, I'm doing this, God is saying, in Christ, hey, I'm going to circle around you for a minute. I'm going to show my love to you by giving my glory to you, by caring about you and saying, hey, not my will, but God's will be done. I'm going to give everything so that I can be in union with you. That God's ultimate self-giving love occurred through Christ to us so that we could share with all of that um, love in God, that we could be invited into this dance. I've, been, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I've loved them even as you have loved me. It's even saying that your greatest evangelical tool is being one with God. That once you are one with God, then the world will know who God is. You are most fully alive when you are one with God. When you are giving Him glory. When you are enjoying Him, showing Him deference, saying, hey, not me, but Him, and giving your life for Him. Um, you're most fully alive when glorifying, dancing with, dancing around, orbiting, your creator, however you want to say that. That you've lost your own self-centeredness where everything is going around you and you're trying to figure out why, how the world is all about you, but you're saying, it's not about me, it's about God, so I'm just going to lose myself in this choreography. <laughs> Thank you, man. Mark eight thirty-five is great for this. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, hey, you've got to get out of yourself. That our ultimate inclination, if we're trying to figure out, hey, who we are, how am I going to be fulfilled, I stop and I try to figure out how everything's about me. I don't know if you've ever seen people dancing, like ballroom dancing, and one person stops, people start bumping into them. 
Now, usually when that happens, you see somebody, okay, they jump back in and they start back up with the steps. But if you just stopped and said, okay, how is this all about me? The dance doesn't work. That the reality of how you're being made, you're stripping away the fabric of that by saying, hey, I got to focus on myself. You're when you focus on yourself, you are literally going against the way the universe was made. As an overflow of self-giving love, everything was made. You are made in the image of a self-giving, self-sacrificing um, God. And so when you go against that, you are breaking down the very way that you're made. I have another quote here from a, uh, a book called The Reason for God. Nothing makes us more miserable than self-absorption. The endless, unsmiling concentration in our needs, wants, treatment, ego, and record. Oh, you're good. That's from uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God. I'll read that one more time. Nothing makes us more miserable than self-absorption. The endless, unsmiling concentration on our needs, our wants, our treatment, ego, and record. Those are all things that I, I see all the time, and I, I focus on all the time, and run headlong into the wall of how I'm made. Boom. Doesn't work. If I'm focusing on, hey, everyone's paying attention to me, right? Hey, these are my achievements. These are my successes that everything starts breaking down, that nothing is ever, ever, ever enough. That if I'm going to get life, that if I'm really going to figure out who God's made me to be, I have to lose my life. I have to focus on Him more than I focus on myself, which seems so paradoxical. But it's exactly the way that the gospel works. So how do you respond to this? This phrase. How do you respond to this phrase? Do whatever makes you happy. That is, that is the calling card of our day right now. Hey, just do what makes you happy. Does it make you happy? Well, keep doing it. Does it make you feel good? Well, keep going. I, I think that's the number one argument I, I hear for same-sex marriage is, well, don't you just want them to be happy? Just let them be happy and get married. So with your groups, how do, how do you respond to this now? If someone says, well... Just do whatever makes you happy. How is the way that the Trinity has made the world, how does that inform how you respond to this answer? I'll give you all about three or four minutes to discuss this. How does, how does the nature of the Trinity help you understand um, when people say, hey, just do what makes you happy? If you have a desire, fulfill it. All right, start wrapping up. I'm right there with you. I hear you. It is. All right. How would um, how would the back table answer this this question? How, how would y'all, as a table, answer this question? Hey, just do or this statement. Someone just says, "Do what makes you happy." Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's kind of wild. Uh, without the moon, our oceans would die. <laughs> that it's necessary, just to keep using the language I have been using, that the moon glorify the earth in a way. Um, what about y'all? Big table. Uh, so we don't have like a cool analogy or anything. 
All right. Yeah, you, uh, all of us are born with broken desires. So how can the fulfillment of that bring wholeness? That, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. I feel like I should do certain things um, that are only going to hurt me. We all have those desires. I mean, um, to do things that we shouldn't. Just because you have a feeling doesn't mean you need to gratify it. No one actually thinks that. Everyone believes that self-restraint is a good thing. Um, I was up here talking to Betsy and Michael, and we were just talking about how happy... That, that's the mantra of almost every marketing scheme you've ever seen is happiness. Hey, you'll be happy if you get this. Or look how happy they are because they're eating or drinking this. That you'll just... This will be it. That's your next step, and that's the last step. You'll be, you'll be there. It's, it's the next and final step to you finding happiness. You just got to take that one, one over. Just give me a little bit of money, and you'll be good to go. And like Connor said, happiness is this like rolling well, roller coaster. It's not a rolling coaster. Um, but it is. It, it's an emotion. If there's one thing that's sure about emotions is that they're going to change. You ever thought how joy is different than happiness? That joy is an assured, comes from an assured hope, uh, from security that you don't have to worry anymore, particularly with us, that we don't have to worry about our salvation. Our salvation is secure. Our future is secure. We have a sovereign God who watches over us, who's in control, so we don't have to worry about all the little details focusing around us for us to know that he loves us and cares for us. That even in pain, you can have joy because you know who God is in relation to who you are. That joy is not a roller coaster like happiness is. And a lot of times, I, f- I felt like with happiness, a lot of times I didn't really know I had it till I looked back on it. Like, but I, I know I'm joyful because of who Christ is. I don't have to see joy in retrospect to know that it's there. Sometimes you know you have happiness, but it is fleeting. Um, that we're all looking for something. We're all looking for something. I, um, I'm going to show a video clip here really quick. It's the intro to the TV show Cheers. And, you know, I've seen Cheers a couple times on Nick at Night. But I, I just want you to listen to the lyrics of the song. Just listen to the lyrics. And, and I want you to, I mean, this is what, this is what people want. This is what people were, are hoping for. Um, all right. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You want to be where you can see Troubles are all the same You want to be where everybody knows your name You want to go where people know People are all the same 
I, I think that song's really interesting because, hey, making your way in the world today sure does take a lot. You know, it's tough out there. Sometimes you just want to take a break and go where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. That you just want to go someplace where, oh, people know me, they're happy with me, they're glad I'm here, I can just be myself. Yeah, well, at the bar in this case, yeah. I'm going to say that because of the Trinity, because of our understanding of who God is, that we necessarily have to have some place where we go and people know our name. We have to be in relationship. We can't do it alone. And that the church should be the best place for that to happen, the most ideal place for you to find an ideal community where you are together glorifying God and serving one another. Because here's the deal. Um, when you are made in God's image, um, you're created in His image, but you aren't triune. You're not. If you are, you're probably going to a psychiatrist because you're schizophrenic. Um, but you, there are not three in one with you. You are just one. You are not essentially love. God is love. I can't, I can't look at anyone in here or myself and say, you are love. <laughs> that, that is, a lot of times, love is not our natural inclination. Um, you are unipersonal. You are not tripersonal, and you need others. What I mean by that, you don't exist in community all by yourself. Remember what God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. That is the only thing in creation that God looks at and says, not good, is aloneness. God is tripersonal, so think about this. God's not unipersonal, so when he didn't need us to create a loving relationship. You know, he didn't need to create people for there to be love. He existed as love, and he welcomed us into that. But we have to express love to the others around us. And your basic desire, like if you're, you're left on your own, I'm left on my own, is not to glorify God but yourself. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that comes from the fall. You know, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created in perfect union with God. They walked with Him. It was a perfect relationship. That they were a part of that dynamic dance, but it was broken. And as a result... We exist as not whole in our relationship with God, not whole in our relationship with others, and have broken, a broken definition of love um, as a culture, as a world in general. Um, so I, we're going to look at a couple verses. And I just want you each to jot down a couple, of, a couple of notes on what this verse is saying about who the church is supposed to be. There are... Um, I think 80-something? 80, 80 I may be wrong. There are, I'll say this, there are a lot of one another phrases in the Bible. Do unto others. You should, this is how you should treat others. This is how you should act around one another. We're just going to look at a couple of verses that Watermark uses to say, hey, this is what community is. If you went up to Rick Wisner, uh, who leads our community ministry, he would give you these verses to say, hey, this is what community is. So you can talk with each other, but I'm just going to throw these up there, read them, and let them sit for a second. 
And I want you to bring applicable points. Hey, what is this verse saying about how community should exist? About how I should treat other people? So we'll start with Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You don't have to do just one. Just write down what you see. And we'll come back and go through these. So you don't have to, you're not just taking shots in the dark. We'll come back to them. All right. This is a big one. And I know the words may be a little small, but it's Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is the description of what the early church was like. So when the church first started, this is what it looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what about this early church is not just descriptive of them, but should be descriptive of all churches? All right, Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. What is this saying about our relationships with each other? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Proverbs fifty, twenty-two: Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. What is this saying about community? All right, Ezekiel 33, 6. Context, just so you know. This is God talking to, uh, or through Ezekiel to Israel. Um, he's specifically saying, hey, that you are a watchman over your people. Then he says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, the sword, sword, the sword comes and takes someone's life. That person's life will be taken because of their sin but I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. So this one's a little bit trickier. But he's tell, telling all of Israel, hey, you're a watchman for those around you. So what is this saying? All right. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. What is Solomon telling us here? James five sixteen. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Alright. Ephesians four, one through three. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right. Let's go back through. What is Hebrews ten twenty four through 25 saying? Just shout out some things that you wrote down. Yeah, 
Community should share their love with each other. Mutually encourage one another. You should build each other up. Spur one another on. Yeah. Being consistent. Yeah. Long-term relationships. Meeting together. Not neglecting that. It's long-term. Yeah, ongoing. You're looking forward to a day, so it's purposeful. There's a purpose behind it. Anything else? Don't give up on each other. Don't give up on each other. Mm. That's a good one. We'll see that again here in a second. But encouraging one another, showing love to one another, being purposeful, coming together, building long-term relationships. Acts 2, 42 through 47. There's a whole bunch here. Let's just take a couple. Yeah. Learning. Sacrificially taking care of each other. Absolutely. Meeting together to worship. Evangelizing, reaching out together. Michael, what did you say? Sharing life together. Sharing whatever's going on. Their food, their... their um, their possessions that they're giving away to each other. That's great. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Challenge. Challenging each other. Absolutely. Think about iron sharpening iron. What is, I mean, that is, there's sparks. That's not a gentle process. It is a challenge. Determined, Yes. This is a determined challenge that your relationships sharpen each other and make you better. Proverbs 15.22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. There's wisdom in community. Yeah. Ideas sound great in your own head. A lot of times until you say them to somebody and they say, well, hold on. Or... You say an idea which you think is thought out, but someone sees it in a little different angle and they help you think through it better. Getting more people around you. There's wisdom in community. Ezekiel 33.6. Okay, so this one's a little bit trickier. I, I love Ezekiel. I think it's great. Right. That, that we are the watchmen for each other. That we're looking out for each other. You see danger, something coming. I mean, there's sin in someone's life, and you see that end result. You're called to lovingly come along beside them and and tell them, hey, there's danger here. You're not called to drag them out of the way because it says, look, I mean, earlier it says, if a person hears the watchman and they do not heed, their blood is on their own hands. But hey, we're called to step out and and tell each other where there's danger. We look out for each other. There's accountability in community. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Exactly. Friends tell you hard truths that hurt sometimes. That if you're just going to say, well, I, I, I know what I should say, but I'm just going to 
encourage them. I'm just going to be nice and won't worry about it. You look more like an enemy because you're giving them deceitful kisses than if you're a true friend and if you step in and say a truth that hurts. But hey, that's a faithful wound. You did it because you care about them and you're faithful. Say, giving each other hard truths is not easy. And it, it, it is hard for you to say, I'm going to say this and I know that they're going to have a negative reaction. But it is the faithful thing to do. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What did you all get from that? Bring your sins to light. Bring your sins to light, yeah. Proverbs says that blessed is the man who brings his sin to the light. Oh. And there's encouragement there too, yeah. Now when someone confesses their sin... If I was going to go to my community group and confess my sin, my initial fear is, A, they won't understand, B, they're going to look at me differently, and they're going to think negatively about me, C, they're not going to trust me anymore, they're going to kick me out, and I can just keep going down the line of all these negative ideas that, I have that are going to be happening. But, this says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. That is a faithful encouragement that I'm locking arms with whoever I'm confessing my sins with. These are people that love me and care about me enough that they can come alongside me and say, hey, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to keep you accountable. I'm going to pray for you every day. I know this is where you are, but as iron sharpens iron, hey, we're going to keep running. How much does that glorify God when you say, hey, I know who this person was but now I can say that God has brought them here. This is this person's life journey in faith. That they were stuck in this sin, but because of what God has done, they are now free from that. And I somehow shared in that. Right. There's healing there from our sin. Yeah. Okay, well, this one's another full one. Ephesians 4, 1 and 3. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance. What do we get from that? Ma'am? Be about the Father's business. Absolutely. Living in patience and peace with your spiritual family. That phrase, being diligent to preserve the unity. Is that hard? Conflict is not sin, but as long as there is sin in the world, we will have conflict. That it takes diligence to preserve unity. and there, We will have arguments, but in humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, those pieces, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love, if you come to someone that you're in conflict with, that there's broken unity with those four characteristics, it will be difficult to not find some sort of resolution. Because you are ultimately saying in patience, hey, I'm not worried about myself, I'm going to bear with you. In humility, I'm not worried about what's happening to me, I'm coming to you because I care for you. In tolerance and love, that you're not judging them, you're saying I'm coming to you because I love you and I care for you. When I say judging, I don't mean calling out wrongdoing. A judge doesn't call out wrongdoing. A judge lays down some sort of consequence. That a judge hears both cases, but they, don't, they, they ultimately say, hey, you are guilty, and this is what's going to happen to you. 
So when I say don't judge, I mean that you're not saying, I mean, it's not up to us to say, hey, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven. You say, look, God loves you. I love this. This is a Toddism. Todd Wagner, our, our pastor. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you enough not to keep you where you are. And he's going to keep you going. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he's not going to keep you where you are. Community is a big part of that. So bringing it all together, hey, this is what our doctrinal statement says. That we, the church in general, not just Watermark, but churches, are a caring family that values informality. Hey, we don't have to have a specific time to get together. Spontaneity, let's go have fun. Freedom of expression, humor, fun, commitment, and loyalty. In our pursuit of holiness, we will acknowledge our imperfection and provide an environment in which people are free to risk, fail, and find grace and encouragement in the time of need. I want to be a part of that group. Hey, if that's real, I want to be a part of that. that that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be about. And think about it. If we're made in the image of a loving, triune God who is always giving himself away to create a perfect community, first in himself and then it overflows and into creation, it's broken and he goes the ultimate distance to bring back that unity, the church should be the best place for people to find community. It should be the most life-giving community in the world because we are in union with God, the very fountain and spring of love. The church should be the best place to go to find people, not the bar, not cheers, right? I have, a, I have another video I'm going to show real quick. Um, it's called Me Church. And I think a lot of times you read that doctrinal statement, you read that and you're just like, man, I want to do that. I want that group of people around me that are diverse but all care about each other and love one another and are committed to other people more than they're committed to themselves. I want that. But this video, it, it, this is a, it's supposed to be a humorous video, but this often is what churches are like and how we act when we come into churches. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. Uh-oh. It's not loading. Man. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you.
So that's pretty tongue-in-cheek, but that's a lot. A lot of times when we walk into church, we're kind of focused on ourselves, right? Walk in, say, hey, what is this church going to be doing for me? How can I be focused? How, I mean, am I, am I feeling good? Am I fitting in? Um, the example we use all the time around here is battleship cruise ship. Um, that a lot of times we walk into church and we treat it like a cruise ship or a resort. We're saying, hey, do, am I comfortable here? Do I like the staff? Do they, do they make me feel comfortable? Do I like the music and who's performing it? Do I, am I, do I enjoy my stay? Would I stay here again sometime? That it's just all of this static, self-centered, hey, the, the church exists for me. And somehow that as we evaluate churches like that, we get to this place. I mean, we all want that. A caring family that values us, that's fun, we're committed, you're free to express yourself in a community where you will risk, fail, or succeed and find grace and encouragement in times of need. We want that, but there's a disconnect sometimes where we come into church and we're saying, hey, how's it about me? If we evaluate it like a cruise ship, we should be coming into church more so like a battleship. Hey, is the captain a person who's under authority? Does every, is everyone here on mission? Do they have a role and are they provided opportunity to succeed? Are they honored when they succeed? Like soldiers who get medals or are celebrated when they succeed. Is this church a body that's all moving in the same direction? Is this ship all going in the same place? Is everyone committed to where it's going? That's a place where you're going to find people who are committed to one another. That church just isn't this Sunday gathering where I come and feel comfortable. It's a place where I go because I care about the people there. I'm committed to them. I have a role in that body in which I'm going to serve them and make them better. And through that, I'm giving myself away. And I'm experiencing that love that is at the very center of God. That I am giving myself away and thus finding life, like Matthew or Mark 8 says. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. That's the community you want to be in. And it's not just a Sunday gathering. That, if you want this, that is a week-long, month-long, year-long, lifelong pursuit. Not just an hour or two on a, month, on a Sunday morning. So Brad asked earlier, hey, what do you mean when you say love? Because I think the Trinity also informs everything we know about love. Is love an emotion? Here are three statements that you're going to hear a lot of people say when they talk about love. You know, you'll know true love when you feel it. Hey, you, you'll know when you find it. It just feels right. You know, uh, if you're dating someone and it doesn't feel right, well, it's probably not love. So you need to find somewhere where it just feels, there's this passion, and you, it, you can't really explain it. It just feels right. And that our relational love, whether you're talking about a dating, marriage, um, or friendships, it'll make you happy. It will complete you. Betsy and I were talking just a second ago how that is the ultimate argument right now for uh, same-sex marriage. That they just want to be happy, so let them get married. That marriage, this relationship, is for happiness. I'm not married, but... 
from all the married people I've talked to, marriage does not exist for happiness. At least that's not where you're going to be going. That, happy, that marriage doesn't exist for happiness, it exists for holiness. Um, one of my professors down at DTS said that marriage is the express lane, no, the HOV lane in sanctification. <laughs> that it's going to get you there pretty quick. Um, if you read 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and you're looking at how Paul is saying that you can be just as fulfilled single as you can be married, then that totally flips this whole idea whole idea on its head that you don't that marriage Paul's saying look if you're single you have more time to serve the Lord than you would if you're married single you have more time to serve the Lord but ultimately marriage will make you more like the Lord that it is a sanctifying process that will speed you up I'm not saying if you're unmarried that you won't get there but Paul says hey if you're married you're, you are split in your focus you are focusing on your marriage because Ephesians 5 your marriage is supposed to be a physical image of how Christ loves the church so that is a ministry but if you're single you have unlimited unbound time just to serve the Lord in whatever ministry you're in that there's purpose in both of them if you watch any romantic comedy is love and emotion absolutely if you listen to music is love and emotion. Absolutely. Everything will tell you that love is this feeling that surpasses everything. Toby, or, uh, is it, uh, it's not Toby Maguire, that's an actor. Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You had me at hello. <laughs> we just love it. I mean, if you watch any love movie, I'm not trying to ruin it all, but there is, it's that feeling of completion and security and just wholeness that you're find that those people are finding in their love partner that there is wholeness there and you watch and you're just like oh my gosh i want that now in relationships are there strong emotions absolutely can you have strong passionate feelings towards someone that you can't explain absolutely will they fade or disappear yeah they will. Will they come back? Yeah, they, they'll probably come back if you stay committed and just diligent to preserve the, the unity of that relationship. Yeah, but they will come and go. That it's not happily ever after the couple got married, movie over, their life was perfect. That, that, that's, not, that's not how it worked out. Um, that love can be an emotion, but ultimately there's a lot behind it there's a lot there's a more firm foundation than emotion underneath love now when we say love we mean it in first corinthians at first corinthians 13 kind of way love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs Love does not delight in in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All right, go through those. Tally up how many of those are feelings. Now, oftentimes feelings can drive and emotions can drive us to these actions. There is a place for emotions, but it's not the foundation of love. That it's a it's a addition that it works alongside love to drive us to good actions, but emotion can also lead lead to some negative actions. 
that every one of these, love is more of a verb than it is a feeling. That old DC talk song, love is a verb. Um, that these are all action verbs too. That you're doing something. You're being patient. You're being kind. And every single one of these, there's not one of these that you can pick out that does not require you to sacrifice something about yourself. That every one of these actions, not being envious, always protecting, always, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering, never envying, never boasting, never proud, you are going to have to give up a lot of yourself to love. That is exactly the way that God created us. That is exactly the way that our universe is created. Think about it. Even in your own bodies, the way that that atoms work, that there's a nucleus, but there's different things revolving around it, that there's all these different parts that come together to work in an atom that make up cells. Cells don't exist for themselves. They create something bigger than themselves, a body. And even if you think about childbearing, how a man and a woman come together, both give something to create something new, that there is, in in parenting, and how much self-sacrifice there is in bringing in new life, that when you realize that God made the world a triune self-giving, self-sacrificing in love, God made the universe, you realize how everything works together that way. All ecosystems work together. They give something about themselves to serve the rest. That ultimately, in, at the end of all things, when the new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth come about, that heaven comes down onto earth. And Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. And that the phrase glory to God is absolutely tied with peace on earth. That all people come together and have peace because they are practicing this, which is self-sacrificing. Ultimately, all coming together to give glory to God, but living in peace in a community. That is, that is, a, that is big. Love as an emotion will not do that. It will seek what is best for the self Hey, this feels good to me. How can I make it feel better? How can I keep this feeling going? What can you do for me so I can keep this feeling going? That's not love. This is love, and it requires a lot. Love is a dangerous commitment. Tweet that. <laughs> love is a dangerous commitment. You are going, you're going to get hurt when you love somebody. If you love a friend, they will hurt you. If you love a spouse, they will hurt you. If you love a child, they will hurt you. Like that, that it's just going to happen. But it is a commitment you're making. Say, despite the pain that you've caused me, I'm going to continue to love you. Isn't that what God did? Despite us, despite humans walking away from God and sinning, despite that Christ comes to us. Oh, man. Okay. I need to slow down. Love is focused on self-sacrifice. Oh, man, that is a dangerous thing. C.S. Lewis wrote this quote in his book, The Four Loves, which is a great little book. He's, he's thick, um, not physically, um, but 
when he writes, you really have to go piece by piece. Um, and he's writing here about, hey, love is dangerous. To, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Loving anything, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. That is, that's deep. That if you don't want to be hurt, you got to you're going to have to walk away from love completely. And that's going to do far more damage to you than the risk of love. Far more. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Despite who we were, God came to us and paid the ultimate price, his son. That's how God showed he loved us. If you want to read, I mean, it, it, it's shocking, Ezekiel 16, where um, God is describing how, what Israel's like. Um, how he said, look, you were a child that no one wanted, and I became your father. I came to you. I cleaned you. I gave you clothes. I gave you jewelry. I washed you. I gave you life when no one else wanted to give you that. Then when you were old enough, I made you my bride. And I gave you even more beautiful things. And then he goes on to say that ultimately Israel became a prostitute and went away to other men, other gods, and gave herself to them. Ultimately, and this is how sin works, ultimately first because of what they gave to her. We Initially, we go to sin because what it gives to us, right? It's fun. It makes us feel good. We get attention, whatever it might be. Ultimately, there's something, there's some promise there that we go towards because it gives us to us. But as you see, Israel eventually gets to the point where God says, you were worse than a prostitute because you started paying them to sleep with you. That sin will come to a point and paying them with God's blessings, with the jewelry and the dresses that God gave Israel. That sin, if you follow it, you will eventually give up everything you have to keep it. That its promises are vain, and ultimately it's going to take you down, and everything that God has given you for you to celebrate a full life in Him, you will give that up for these vain promises of sin. But at the end of Ezekiel 16, after this terrible story, God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you deserve. You, you sinned, and I'm a just God, and so there will be punishment for that sin. But I'm going to keep my promise to you despite what you have done. You've broken my covenant, but I'm going to keep it. I'm choosing to keep it. Furthermore, I'm going to make atonement for your sin. I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. Like God's not just saying, hey, I'm going to hang with you. He says, I'm going to go above and beyond that, I, that you're not going to make atonement for your sin, I'm going to do that for you. And I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. And that was ultimately found in Christ. That is a big love. 
Big, big love. John, 1 John 4, 7-10 through 10, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is love. Ultimate love is not that, not that God loves us because we loved him back, but be, despite what we did, God gave everything for us. Man. And that we might live through him, that ultimately the salvation moment is not the end, that this love, this gospel love that God gave his only son, the gospel is something we live in every single day. Galatians talks about this, that Galatians was the power with, or the gospel is the power with which you were saved and which you are currently being saved. That you're standing, it's the power that you are standing in and that you're walking in. That every day you get up and the gospel love is what keeps driving you on. That triune love. And we looked at this earlier, being diligent to preserve the unity. If we love as God loved, that despite what people do, we will continue to bear with them in patience, humility, gentleness, showing tolerance to them in love, to be diligent to preserve the unity of our, of our community, of our church. I'm going to leave you with this. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's Jesus talking. That's him speaking to his disciples, saying, look, this is the greatest love. And then right after this goes on to show them what it is. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, then I'm going to do it, then I'm going to come back and tell you what I did. Make sure you know it from all three angles. That's it. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. We serve a triune God who exists in a constant state of active, vibrant love. And he's welcoming us back into that. That everything around us exists. The very reality of, of the universe is to give self-giving love. That's where, when, you, when people say, hey, there's not life there, or you're not going to find life there, they're saying you're going against the grain of reality. You're being self Focus. You're not focusing on God and others. Love God, love others. Because God is Trinity, that our world is a vibrant and beautiful place where love thrives. If God were just some spiritual reality, it would be very personal. I just have to figure out something in my head, and then I'm done. That's how Eastern religions work. Eastern religions say that ident personal identity and love are just illusions. They're all part of the greater soul. But this is giving you, think about, think about this, that God specifically created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb exactly the way you are because he loved you and has a specific purpose for you in creation. In his church, to share his love with other people, to invite you into this dance with him, to take part in it. That's exciting. That changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. That makes it more than something that 
we just kind of think about and can't understand or something that showed up in a creed in the 4th century. That changes everything. All right, I'm going to pray so we can get out of here. Father, we come to you uh, emotionally and mentally and spiritually overwhelmed at the very nature of who you are, at the reality of what you have done, and the way that you have made each one of us. Thank you that you have individually loved each one of us. That you love us just the way you are, but you love us so much you don't want us to stay there. That you've loved other people so that we can have a community. Like your servant Paul said, that we are living stones being built, or Peter, we're living stones being built together into a holy temple for you. God, I pray that we would be long-suffering, we would be patient and humble with each other, that we would seek to express self-giving love, that we would take that risk because it is absolutely worth it. Lord, we, we desire to follow the example of your Son, Jesus. It is in His name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Alrighty. The, in your booklets, the Behaving and be- Becoming Two will be really helpful. Walking through community and in love. And then next week we're going to talk about God's holiness and purity and what that means for us. Alright, thanks y'all. Um, there's one more after next week. So next week we'll be talking the more theology side, hey, and, and God is holy, what does that mean? And then the week after that we're going to be talking about worship and prayer.